This is Illegal Tender Season 8. I'm Adriana Belmonte. We learned from our first episode that the prison industry runs much deeper than just for-profit prisons. In fact, there are industries within the industry, like privatized healthcare, telecommunications, and even food services. Bianca Tylek, the executive director of Worth Rises, an organization dedicated to dismantling the prison industry, was eager to explain why it's important to not just focus on one part of the overall issue. This is why I I always push back on journalists when they have this focus on private prisons, because I think it's a bit, it's, it's narrow. And I think it like speaks to this, like a misunderstanding of the industry. The prison industry is an $80 billion industry. Private prisons make up $5 billion. Mm -hmm. So there's billions more that are going to other places. There's many like financial ways to talk about not just the problem, but also the industries, the various industries. We put out a report every year that has over 4,000 companies on it that operate inside of prisons and jails. Most of those are not necessarily operating inside of private prisons and jails. They're operating inside of all prisons and jails. So you have a dedicated industry to incarceration that is much broader than just operations and management of facilities, which is one sector. So when we look at these 4,000 companies, we look at 4,000 companies divided into 12 sectors. Um, Only one of them is operations and management, and those are companies that run facilities, private prisons. But there's also construction um, and architecture and design and maintenance. Those are companies that design prisons, that build prisons, including publicly run prisons. There's healthcare. These are companies that exclusively do prison health care. Um, more than half of uh, the country's healthcare, like prison health care systems have been privatized. They're owned by private equity firms. Prison telecom, food, the largest provider of food in prisons is Aramark. Second is Sodexo. These are major publicly traded corporations that operate inside of not just private prisons, but all prisons. So I, I think like I'm in this place where there's a lot that's done on private prisons. Mm -hmm. And I think that it misguides the public into thinking that private prisons um, are alone the problem Mm -hmm. or that they're like ubiquitous in the system. And they're not, right? They make up less than 9% of people who are in prison or jails are in a private facility. Obviously that's different in immigration detention where it's over 70%. Beyond that, there is a tremendous amount of exploit, financial exploitation and predation on the part of corporations on all people who are incarcerated and their loved ones, regardless of the facility operation structure. This piqued my curiosity. It made me wonder then why so much attention is brought onto private prisons when it's the system as a whole that should be discussed. So why do you think it is then that private prisons get so much of the attention? It's been like that for quite some time. So they were first on the market in this in this area. So when it comes to profiteering on mass incarceration in large part 
they came in really early and they also played a really big role in the expansion of mass incarceration and that was in the early 1980s that was their role in alec role in drafting many of the really problematic and carceral pieces of legislation that helped uh, balloon the prison population. But they're also easy to latch onto. There's an easy corporate villain that's very public, and that's the other piece. These are publicly traded companies. And so people easily see these these publicly traded companies, these CEOs, and latch onto them as problematic. You also you know, name them private prisons or for-profit prisons and and have that narrative that attaches. But I think also importantly, because journalism does this, <laughs> like just goes, let's talk about private prisons, not understanding really the breadth and scope of industry inside of prisons and jails. And so it, it, it's just, it out, what do you say? It's, it's overblown in the media. And like, we've tried to spend a lot of time and energy like correcting that record so that we can actually talk about the things that are important and not red herrings that deviate messaging and, and attention. So when this happens, so do you think this kind of takes away attention and the focus of the conditions of prisons that are to be considered state-run prisons or federal prisons? I think it's deeper than that. I don't think it's just about taking attention away from conditions. Mm -hmm. It's not understanding the scope of the problem. Mm -hmm. It's really dwarfing the scope of the problem. It's suggesting that there's these two players, maybe three or four, that dominate the market. And as long as we could get rid of these three or four players, we've solved the crisis. Mm -hmm. And that's just nowhere near the truth. And yet there's a tremendous amount of financial interests in the system, but the rest of them are obfuscated and ignored. And because of that, are worsening all the time. The U.S. prison population has increased by 500% over the last 40 years, according to The Guardian. In 2014, nearly 5,000 people incarcerated within U.S. correctional facilities died, a 3% year-over-year increase. And, The Guardian report found, the mortality rate in state prisons was 275 for every 100,000 people in state prisons which was the highest since data collection began in 2001. There's not only the private prison industry, but there are the many industries that serve our carceral state, that nickel and dime, both the people who are inside who are incarcerated and their families on the outside. So really in a lot of ways, our incarceration system, mass incarceration is a tax on the poor. This is Amy Fettig. We met her in our last episode. Uh, hidden in the many costs that it inflicts on people. Um, and quite frankly, a lot of these systems, a lot of the, the, the commissary systems that provide extra food or tampons or, or uh, uh, basic items, care items, they have monopolies. So what you and I might pay on the outside, when you're buying it on the inside, it's astronomically more. So we have reports where women who cannot get menstrual products inside are forced to pay, for example, 
$4 for four tampons, a dollar a tampon. And these are folks who make sense on the dollar. So that, for example, women in Colorado were actually using two weeks of wages in order to buy a single box of tampons. Now, isn't that tampons are considered part, aren't they considered part of uh, women's health hygiene? Isn't that kind of a violation of their human rights? Uh, Yes, it is. No, they are not given tampons. Now, more and more states are passing menstrual equity laws that recognize that when you, that government institutions like prisons and jails and public schools and and, uh, housing shelters should provide basic hygiene items because most of these people are completely indigent and that they should be available on demand. But what we've seen across the country, because so often they're not, or what is available is such poor quality that it doesn't actually work, that people are having to dip into their very small savings or their families are are having to give money to them to just to get basic items. So before the COVID, right, right before the COVID crisis, as more and more jails and prisons were becoming infected in March, I was in prisons in Arizona. And the people there did not have soap if they did not have enough money to pay for it. Or they were given very small, thin, uh, negligible amounts of soap that wasn't enough to keep washing their hands and washing their body and keeping clean in the midst of the epidemic. Simply because they didn't have enough money to pay for a larger bar of soap uh, on the commissary that cost an enormous amount of money. Especially because... You don't necessarily get a job when you're in prison. There aren't enough jobs for everybody. People want to work. They want to make whatever small amount of money they can in order to buy shampoo or pay for a phone call so they can talk to their child. But these are all at astronomical prices because of the monopoly power. And because, quite frankly, there are industries making money off of people losing their freedom in this country. Back in October 2019, while wildfires were blazing across the San Bernardino area of California, people incarcerated through the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation were put to work as firefighters, making just $1 an hour. The mean wage for firefighters in California is $81,580. As we speak, over 1,000 incarcerated people are being used to fight the wildfires currently ravaging through the state of California. There are currently 35 adult prisons in the state of California, housing over 85,000 people. This is what Brandon from the ACLU had to say. The one thing I want people to remember is that while private prisons are a part of our system that we have to eradicate, we have to abolish private prisons. They are only one piece and arguably one small piece of our larger problem and our larger addiction to mass incarceration. We have to address the fact that there are 2.2 million people in jails and prisons across this country. There are over 4 million people who are subject to supervision in the form of probation or parole supervision. And all those people stand to be abused and neglected by private prisons and other private entities. But The best way to address this is to look more fundamentally at our addiction to punishment and incarceration and find long-lasting and more systemic solutions. I'm sure you've heard of this term, the prison industrial complex. Yes. 
How would you define that in your own terms? The prison industrial complex is a self-perpetuating process whereby private interest in the prison system lobby to protect their own interest in maintaining prisons and thereby support the continuation of mass incarceration and other abuses that we've seen over the past several decades. And can you think of any, and I mean, I, I can easily reach out to these for comments as well, so don't worry about this, but specific companies that are heavily involved in the private prison industry? Yes, the, the two biggest companies, at least in the United States, are Core Civic and the Geo Group. There's another private prison corporation called MTC. I'm actually not forgetting what the letters stand for. <laughs> uh, but Core Civic and Geo Group com comprise the, the vast majority of the private prison industrial complex in our country. Okay. And I mean, I, I don't know the extent of how much you can talk about this, but have you had any clients that have, you know, potentially maybe filed lawsuits against their private prison conditions or just have any lawsuits that you've been involved in in that industry? Not personally. I mean, obviously, the ACLU has brought numerous lawsuits in this context. Yeah. And in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, we have sued several private facilities for their responses to the pandemic and, and have experienced much the same lack of transparency that we do in normal times. Yeah, that, that leads me to my next question. With the context of the coronavirus right now, you know, what are the conditions like? I mean, I know it, it probably varies by the different locations, but is there a general um, overall environment that's taking place? The one common thread throughout much of our work on how jails and prisons have responded to the pandemic has been a failure to address systemic overcrowding in the facilities, along with very, very basic negligence in terms of sanitation, just providing people with enough soap to keep their hands clean, washing floors in common areas. But I would really point to the overcrowding as the major barrier to a coherent and competent response to COVID-19, and one that we should predict will be more of a problem in private prisons, again, because their very contract with local governments require that they be kept almost at capacity. And so when local governments attempt to reduce the number of people in jails and prisons, it's much harder to do that against a private prison because you could find yourself being sued by the private prison because you are now trying to move people out in violation of the contract. Fascinating. It's like a catch-22 almost. Indeed. Yeah. And I'm just curious, do, I mean, again, it's going to vary by location, but, you know, are guards wearing masks? Are prisoners wearing masks? You know, I mean, I know you mentioned sanitation and having an, uh, enough soap, but what about, you know, the, uh, the individual people? That the extent to which jails and prisons are complying with basic guidelines from the CDC and other public health officials around personal protective equipment, PPE, things like wearing masks varies greatly across facilities. Mm -hmm. The one common thread is that they 
Even in facilities that purport to provide masks, the masks and other types of protective equipment are inconsistently provided. It's very easy on a piece of paper to say, we are going to provide masks to all prisoners who need them and require all corrections officers to wear them. It's another thing to actually enforce those rules and say, if you see a correctional officer who is not wearing a mask properly, or who has decided not to wear a mask in certain circumstances uh, to make that, that policy real. And, and what we're seeing in our litigation is a, a real disconnect between the policies on paper and the policies as they're actually being enforced. I asked Bianca what she thought about these problems. They're all problematic in their own ways. I would say they're, they're, they're different. So take healthcare. Mm-hmm. Think about the global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Think about what it means to be a private healthcare provider inside of prisons, routinely sued for malpractice, including co-pays so that people can access care, right? Inside of prisons where they make 10 cents an hour, if anything. What does it mean to understaff prisons with health care uh, providers at a time, especially at a time like we're in now, right, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And now we see jails and prisons as the leading hotspots around the country for the virus. And all because there is a lack of investment in nutrition, we'll get to food and commissary in a second, lack of access to hygiene products, we'll get to commissary in a second, and really uh, awful regular healthcare. Conditions within prisons were already problematic, but have grown even worse as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. At the Albion Correctional Facility, a medium-security women's prison in New York, incarcerated women make $4 a day bottling hand sanitizer for essential workers. Yet, they aren't given masks or hand sanitizer to use despite close working proximities, according to the Washington Post. Staff and visitors don't have face masks either. They hire some of the almost underqualified staff in medical positions and have high turnover. All of those things lead to really bad outcomes, meaning that a lot of people in prison are suffering really awful health care, but also coming in and having their wealth, excuse me, their health uh, compromised. I think on top of that, think, okay, so take food is another one of those spaces where it's food vendors are serving food infested with maggots or bones of rodents delivered to facilities with labels that say low grade but edible and that's your aramark that's the same company that serves many college campuses and corporate and government buildings take telephone as i said earlier you have companies that for for quite a bit of time were actually convincing sheriffs to end in-person visits so that they could replace them with video calls that they would charge $10 for 20 minutes or $25 for a 15 minute phone call. All these types of practices where they've been sued time and time again for violations of listening on privileged phone calls with attorneys, those type or divulging people's GPS location because you receive a call from a prison as if there's no safety 
no security that you are allowed to have as somebody who receives calls from somebody who's inside. Take data and information systems. These are things like gang databases and risk assessment tools. Like there is a, a huge industry here and each of these sectors really uh, comes in to exact its unique uh, and distinct harm. I asked Amy where this happens. You're explaining the commissary costs and these uh, hidden taxes. Does this only happen in the private prisons or does this happen in public prisons as well? This happens across the board in, in all institutions around the world. And I would also say that the privatization of medical care in many prisons is a huge problem. Because again, how do they make money? By cutting costs, by denying care, by understaffing so that we hear horror stories around the country of people being denied access to basic medical care, of people being denied access to testing, of being denied access until their problems are so acute. Uh, for example, cancer, not being tested uh, and having to wait months, if not years, until it is too late. So people dying preventable deaths because these private medical companies that come into prisons and jails are making money off of denying care. And quite frankly, think about it. We, we all have our health insurance if we're lucky. We have HMOs and, and dealing with those companies can sometimes be very difficult to get care. But what if that company didn't actually have outside accountability? What if everybody that company served had no voice in the type of care they were getting? No one would listen to them when, when they said, I, I, I feel sick, I need care, I need care, I need care. There's nowhere else for them to go. They can't go to a different insurance company. They can't change doctors. They're trapped on the inside with the, these corporations whose bottom line is really the only thing they care about too often. And there's very little public accountability to say, no, you actually have to provide adequate care for these folks. Their only recourse is to hope that somebody will sue on their behalf. And that's no way to actually provide decent care to anybody. Between the 2010 fiscal year and 2014, federal prison medical spending increased by 22%, from $905 million to $1.1 billion. But that spending doesn't often translate into quality healthcare services. In 2012, there was one federal prison and 238 state facilities that were under court order or consent decrees to improve their healthcare conditions according to a report from consulting firm HDR. I asked Lauren Brooke Eisen how to talk about these ideas with people who simply have a tough-on-crime attitude toward incarcerated people. The Brennan Center issued a report a couple of years ago called How Many Americans Are Unnecessarily Incarcerated? And the report found that almost 40% of people in our state and federal prisons don't need to be there when it comes to public safety. And that's a pretty significant finding. So many people who are locked away behind bars, suffer from mental health issues or drug issues. Um, many of them are elderly. Many of them are not getting the programming and the services that they need to su successfully reintegrate into their communities. And we are a very punitive nation. We have 2.2 million people behind bars in this country. And that statistic doesn't even include um, all of the people who are locked away in immigration detention centers. 
we need to do a better job in, in this country of reintegrating people back into society. And we over-incarcerate. America has more people behind bars than any country on this planet. Our policies are very excessive and punitive when you look at other democratic countries across the globe. We have far too many people behind bars in the United States and far too many people who are behind bars for very long stretches of, of time. And our report, How Many Americans Are Unnecessarily Incarcerated, finds that even people who've been convicted of violent crimes are spending far too long behind bars, locked away in these prison cells, not getting treatment, programming. So many people who are in our nation's jails and our prisons are separated from their communities. We know that mass incarceration has devastating consequences for not only the people who are incarcerated, but for their families. And we need to reimagine our system of justice in this country. We need to significantly shrink the footprint of all of our jails and prisons and detention centers. And that includes both private facilities and public facilities. Our system of mass incarceration is simply not working. Problems with mass incarceration haven't been isolated to just one political party. Republican President Ronald Reagan created the war on drugs, while Democratic President Bill Clinton was responsible for instituting mandatory minimums when it came to sentencing. Current President Donald Trump signed the First Step Act into law back in December 2018. It included reductions to the federal prison population, changes to sentencing, and prohibition of using restraints on women during pregnancy, labor, and postpartum recovery receiving bipartisan support. However, Trump has received other criticisms for his tough-on-crime approach when it comes to policing. His opponent, Joe Biden, has also been criticized for his past votes on crime bills. Let's say the president is elected, they decide, okay, I'm going to make one uh, major policy reform when it comes to mass incarceration. What would you or your organization hope they would start with? Remove all profiteering from prison facilities. And they should be government run and there should be no private corporations in the operation, in any piece of the operation of prison facilities. And government should not, governments nor corporations should not be able to profit off of incarceration or the families of incarcerated people. Note that Bianca uses the term incarcerated people rather than inmates. There's a reason for that. Language is super important in work because it's language is born somewhere. Um, And so that term is the term used by correctional officers and folks inside and like the way in which people are labeled with inmate numbers and Mm -hmm. things that are like super problematic. We typically refer to people as like people who are incarcerated, incarcerated people, or just people because we already know you're talking about people in prisons and jails. So, you know, we know who, who you're talking about. When you use terms like that, it often others folks into a place where you forget that they are people like the rest of us, Mm -hmm. which is why the term like people is so important or mother, fathers, daughters, sons. I heard this comedian, I don't know if you know this comedian, Cat Williams. I've heard. Um, 
Okay, so yeah, Cat Williams had this like uh, comedic skit a number of years ago, and he said, they always tell us on the news how many insurgents died. And he's like, jokes, he's like, I don't care. I don't know any insurgents. I don't know what an insurgent is. Um, like, you can kill all the insurgents because I don't know who those are. And when we say inmates or we use these kind of labels, it is very similar to that. It is creating distance and space and labeling as something other than, you know, what we would identify as. I've been asking this question for with each person I've interviewed, because when you're trying to reach people who tend to have that tough on crime stance, how do you explain to them that they should be paying attention, that they should genuinely care about mass incarceration, the prison industry, and the corruption that takes place. Because for some of them, when you, when I've had conversations in the past, they'll be like, they broke the law, this is what they signed up for. How do you respond to that? Who wrote the law? So I think the first question, when whenever I hear the comment, don't do the crime if you can't do the time, mm-hmm. I always think to myself, exactly who decided this was a crime? So the first piece of this puzzle is always understanding that corporate interests don't just dictate conditions. They don't just dictate the aftermath. They also dictate what is crime and what is not crime in our country. So take, for example, marijuana. Marijuana uh, legalization has been a fight that has been being waged by many advocates for two, three decades now. And there are three primary lobbies against marijuana legislation, and they're very powerful uh, lobbies that spend a lot of money to try to prevent the legalization of marijuana. And if you sat long enough and thought about who might actually have a vested interest in marijuana continuing to be criminalized, you'd probably come around to the answers. But the answer is private prisons, healthcare or pharmaceutical companies, and alcohol. And you realize that all three of those major industries, which have a lot of liquid cash to spend on things like lobbying and campaign financing, have a huge financial interest in marijuana staying criminalized. And so this notion that you know somebody has committed a crime is somewhat only is heavily influenced by corporate interests from the beginning. And that's beyond even the like, point of understanding what's a, like the policing of crimes, right, is really different in different communities. What's a crime in on the Upper East Side, um, or I should say, what's a crime in Brownsville is not always a crime in the Upper East Side. What's a crime in Brownsville might be policed and might be arrested, might be convicted and charged, and may never even see a police in the Upper East Side. I think people need to really truly understand that corporate and financial interests like in many ways dictate our like existence. I won't just say corporate interests, but just wealth, like wealth and white wealth in particular in this country dictate how we view what is criminal behavior. 
and has had a huge impact on who is incarcerated in our prisons and jails. And I think it's, you know, just important to talk to people about many of the clear stats, but also things about people coming home, right? 95% of people will come home. Do you want that person coming home healed and whole, or do you want them coming home harmed, empty, and needing? What is what does that mean for us ethically, but also what would that mean for how somebody reenters successfully or not? So I think there's many ethical conversations and points that need to be made about what we've done and how much of our system is rooted in a remarkably racialized and oppressive history that we have, we're nowhere near having come out of. And at the same time, there are plenty of like practical arguments around both public safety as well as fiscal uh, considerations. And just to take a step back here, can you explain a little bit about what your organization Worth Rises does, you know, what your mission is when it started? Yeah, sure. So at Worth Rises, we, our mission, let me like, if you also do, I might not even use your wording of it. I might even paraphrase it. So don't worry. Right. I, was say, I, I, was, I, I wasn't ready to say the spiel. I'm like, I'll say the spiel. <laughs> At Worth Rises, we're dedicated to dismantling the prison industry and ending the exploitation of people who are incarcerated and their loved ones uh, with a special attention on those that are most directly targeted by the criminal legal system, Black, Brown, and Indigenous people. We envision a society in which no entity or individual depends on human caging or control. That means incarceration or supervision in the community for their wealth, operation, or livelihood. Meaning whether you're a CEO uh, making $6 million a year running a private prison or you're a corrections officer making $25,000 a year. We want to shut down the industry that's been built around uh, incarceration and shift the economy away from it. So my last question here, if, if your end goal is to end the way the mass incarceration is constructed, how do you envision the criminal justice system in that kind of world? What would happen when somebody is found guilty of a crime? How do you envision justice? I think you're starting from the wrong question. What is some? What happens when a crime happens is too late in the infrastructure that we're trying to build. Okay. Um, when I envision the world without police and prisons... I envision a world in which we have provided for people a dignified quality life. That means we have provided education and housing and health care. It means for those who need, we provide substance abuse treatment and mental health. We provide social services. We do the all of the pieces that right now are coming together to ensure that we are the uh, leading incarcerator in the world. But if we build all of those structures, if we invest in our communities and put money from policing and prisons into the structures that truly need to be financed, then you'll never be asking that question, what happens when there's a crime? We want to get to a world where we're asking before that, 
right? What happened to create the crime? What happened? What were the, the different uh, parameters that had to all come together for somebody to make that decision? And so I think that's the first question. When there's a process that we're all working towards there, and of course, when it comes to crime, we can talk to folks who do restorative justice and what it looks like to talk about um, accountability rather than punishment and understand that they are not synonymous. And so I think those are really the things that we're looking at as we start looking towards a world uh, that doesn't depend on prisons. To profit off misery, is such a awful reflection of our society. I think some something that I, I don't talk about that often, but I always tell people, when you profit off crime, you also profit off victims. Yeah, like what people always think, this is why I say like when they're like, you can exploit people in prison, you can build a whole industry on putting people in prison, it's, but you're then also like building an industry around like hurting people. And that's obviously like violent crime is different, but people hurting is like a different way of saying that, returning it and realizing that not every crime has a an external victim. Mm-hmm. Some crimes have like internal victims. And what I mean by that is take drug crimes that might not have, it's not like somebody's gone out and hurt somebody else, but have they hurt themselves like in this process and all of that. So like, I think that there's such a ugliness and nastiness in the prison industry and and what the prison industry stands for that we really need to reinvent that and reconsider that and i think sometimes i hear people say particularly libertarians like to say you can make money on anything it's just you have to do it x y and z blah 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 but let the market forces tell and i'm like that's just not true Because if that was the case, then like sex work would be legal and like drugs would be legal and like all these things that in fact, society tells people you can't make money doing that. Mm -hmm. So it's not crazy for us to say you can't make money off of people in prison. Just means that those in power need to come around to that, Mm -hmm. like understanding and realize, no, there are plenty of lines in the ground around what you're allowed to make money on and what you're not, where ethics start to really muddy the waters. And I don't think this is muddy. This is like pretty black and white. This is pretty problematic, really harmful. And yeah, and so I hope that our society is moving closer and closer to a place where we recognize people's humanity, uh, where we don't exploit those in the most marge like that we have marginalized most that we support people and help people improve their lives that we want people to win in our next episode we'll talk to a man who served 13 years behind bars and a young man who got caught up in the juvenile criminal justice system A legal tender is made by Yahoo Finance at our studios and homes in New York City. This episode was written and hosted by me, Adriana Belmonte. A legal tender was created, edited, and produced by Alex Sugg. Thank you to Bianca Tylek, Brandon Buskey, Amy Fettig, 
and Lauren Brooke Eisen for sharing your knowledge with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review it for the show. Until next time, thank you for listening to A Legal Tender.